Welcome to the latest edition of our Fixed Interest podcast series. My name's Tony Stringer and I'm a Managing Director in Fitch's Global Sovereigns Group. I'm joined today by Brian Colton, our Chief Economist and Lead Author of Fitch's Quarterly Global Economic Outlook Report. So, Brian, the tagline for Fitch's latest GEO report is Cruel Summer, reflecting some pretty material downward revisions to our growth forecasts since the June GEO. You're now flagging a broad-based slowdown through the rest of 2019 and right the way through 2020. So what are the main drivers of that slowdown and which regions are most severely affected? I think maybe to answer that, it's interesting to compare what's been going on over the last 12 months where we had a very significant slowdown in world trade and world growth with what's driving the outlook. And over the last 12 months, there have been a number of different factors behind this global slowdown. The slowdown in Chinese domestic demand, which was in response to an earlier tightening of credit conditions there, was an important factor, probably the most important factor, to be honest, over the last 12 to 18 months. The tightening of dollar liquidity conditions last year, the impact that had on some major emerging markets. We had foreign currency crises last summer, which then had a big big impact on, on growth. And trade policy also been important, but probably not the, not the dominant driver. Big contrast with how we see things going forward when really the further downturn in growth we're expecting and the downward revisions we've just made, all about trade policy. OK, so just picking up on that theme of the trade war and its impact on growth, is the worst case scenario now baked into our macro forecasts or is there a further risk of escalation that could exacerbate the slowdown? And then secondly, given the central involvement of the US in this whole trade war situation, why is it that our forecasts for US growth don't appear to be factoring in more of a slowdown there? Well, in terms of worst case scenario, uh, you have to get more and more creative here because we looked at this in early August and we we thought about what would happen if we got 25% tariffs on the re- remaining Chinese imports into the US as the worst case. What we have now is is virtually 75% of the way there. So we are going to see the effective tariff rate uh, on on Chinese imports to the US rise to something like 25% by the end of by the end of this year. That's now current US policies. So in that sense, we we are almost in the previous what we thought was the worst case scenario. But it's always possible for a bad day to get worse. And um, the two clear downside risks on this forecast are a No Deal Brexit on the 31st of October, which would have a very significant impact, we think, on, on uh, not just the UK, but also on, on Eurozone growth. We might take another 0.3, 0.4 off our Eurozone growth forecasts if that were to happen. And there's the lingering issue of potential tariffs from the US on European autos, which again would hit Germany particularly hard, which has been one of the, one of the weakest weakest economies. So we kind of have to be careful about the, the worst case phrase now, uh, because we keep getting shocked to the downside. In terms of your second question about the impact on the US, you know, you can sort of argue in a way that the US is at the epicenter of these negative policies that are affecting growth adversely. But the, the sort of the irony is that the US economy itself is somewhat less exposed to these trade shocks just because it's a much more closed economy. And manufacturing and exports just don't count for as much and contrast it with an economy like, say, Germany or even the UK. So the US, we think, shows sort of relative resilience. It's certainly not immune, but it shows relative resilience to these sorts of trade policy shocks. So we've talked before about the growing importance of China to the global economy. Do you see the big negative growth revision, which we've got coming down to 5.7% for next year, purely reflecting the trade issues? Or is it part of a broader structural trend of slowing growth in China? 
Well, we did always think that Chinese growth would, over the next three or four years, edge down to uh, our estimate of Chinese potential growth is about 5.5%. Uh, but we thought that would be quite a slow process. We thought it would be very gradual and that they would still be looking very much to their target of doubling real GDP per capita between 2010 and 2020, which requires over 6% growth this year and next year. I think what this trade war has, has done to some extent, it's made the Chinese uh, policymakers a little bit less focused on that near-term growth target. So we think they, they are going to tolerate lower growth. So we're, we're getting back to that lower medium term potential growth rate more rapidly than we thought because of the because of the trade shock and because of our judgment that we don't see that the Chinese are going to be pulling all the levers they can find when they're not going to be doing sort of whatever it takes in order to keep growth above 6%. They're, they're going to allow growth. They're sort of going to take it on the chin, if you like. So turning now to monetary policy, Fed and the ECB both appear to be turning more dovish following the Fed rate cuts and the restarting of QE by the ECB. But do you see any major differentiation in their policy paths and, and which one of them do you think has the more challenging task ahead? It really has been a massive U-turn in global monetary policy in 2019 compared to where we thought we were going to be. It's true for both the ECB and the Fed, but I think in a way the Fed have kind of got a lot more options and a much easier task in the sense that they still have monetary policy space, they still have significantly positive interest rates, they're not up against the zero lower bound, and cyclically the economy is looking okay domestically. The rate cuts that they've made have been all about sort of insuring against external risks that they've not been driven by the US data flow, which has remained, remained pretty good. Inflation's not very far from their target. Whereas in the Eurozone, not only has it been hit harder by these global trade shocks, but if it comes against a backdrop of inflation being much lower than the ECB's target. Years and years of forecasts of rising core inflation have not manifested themselves, and then a big decline in inflation expectations this year. And they're already at the, at the zero lower bounds, so they've had to do all sorts of creative things with tiering of reserves uh, in, in order to sort of offset the, the potential adverse impact on, on the banking sector of taking rates further negative. So I think it's a lot harder for the, for the ECB. Therefore, it's been more, more controversial. Finally, with monetary policy settings still so loose, one question that keeps being raised is whether the negative bond yield phenomenon is here to stay for the foreseeable future. What are the main reasons for the negative yields that we're seeing in so many parts of the bond market, and do they represent a warning signal for markets? There's definitely an element here that is about, you know, we've got a synchronised global downturn, we've got worries about whether a central bank's going to be able to achieve their inflation targets or they're going to persistently undershoot, sort of Japanification kind of worries, if, if you like. So I think that's definitely been a part of it. There's also been it's a sort of a natural trade when there's a rise in risk aversion, increase in uncertainty, you know, you buy, buy treasuries is the trade. But I think it's important also to emphasise how important the role of central banks themselves is in driving down these lower yields. And that, I think, is, is significant in terms of how, how much of a signal is it really telling us about the economy. You saw the big decline in yields start when the market came around to the view that the ECB would restart asset purchases. That was around June that that became consensus. Uh, and everybody was looking at the stock of German government bonds and saying, well, if the ECB is going to be coming in buying a low more, this is going to force the price up. And that, that became a very popular trade. Now, there's not not that many large liquid safe asset markets out there in the world. German Bunds is one and US Treasuries is another. So when German yields get driven down, driven into deeply negative territory, there's limits as to how wide the differential with 10-year US Treasury yields can go. And I think that was a, that was an important factor as well, that what the ECB is doing in the, in the European market 
uh, has dragged down yields and yields in the US. We think that's been a, a quite an important part of this recent decline in bond yields. And one of the reasons why we're sort of discounting to some extent the inverted yield curve as, as a signal of, of US recession risk. Thanks for those insights, Brian, and thank you for listening. You can access the September Global Economic Outlook Report, along with our other sovereign and economics research, on Fitch's website. We hope you join us for the next edition of Fixed Interests.